0: One of the amazing results of technology as we're heading into this Christmas season is shipment tracking. And I imagine at this point most of you guys have been tracking some type of shipment at some point heading into the Christmas season. So we get to see how the shipping works. I mean, you think you could go to DunderMifflin.com and order a box of paper, and you can track the moment that Daryl and Roy load that box onto the truck until the moment it ends up on your doorstep. I mean, it's wild. There's something reassuring about having that timeline laid out for you. And there's no question of whether your delivery will make it or not. I mean, this is what it showed up on, on mine this week. I think I've got this picture here. It actually shows you how many stops away your package is. So this dude's like in my neighborhood, and Amazon knows it. And I'm, I'm figuring I can go out and pick it up in just a second. It's crazy how pinpoint accurate your delivery is because of this delivery tracker. The Old Testament is like the original delivery tracker, is my proposal to you this morning. God wanted... The world to know he was coming. I mean, Genesis 3 was really the first prophecy, maybe the first bullet point on the ordered. Genesis 3 was the really the first prophecy of the original Christmas present. It's the first update in the Old Testament tracking system, if you will, that there would be a seed who would rise up and crush the serpent's head. But then in the rest of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures consistently Consistently, we were delivered updates on the coming of the Messiah, prophet after prophet, from Moses to David to Isaiah to Daniel to Micah. These men proclaimed God's promise of the arrival of Jesus. So when the birth of Jesus came, it was historic. It was expected. It was anticipated. The anticipation had been building. The expectation was high. And we find at the beginning of Luke's telling of the life of Jesus, a recognition of the history being made. The ancient prophecy being fulfilled. If you look in chapter 1, and I really encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, flip over there. We're going to be in Luke a good bit. If you don't have a Bible, open your phone, Google Luke chapter 1 and 2. At the end of Luke chapter one, really all of chapter one is the coming of Jesus. So you, first you get the story of John the Baptist's birth, which is just a preceding Christ's birth. You get the account of Gabriel's visit to Mary, informing her of her role in Jesus's arrival. And so already we find the historical fulfillment of Jesus' coming. Mary says this in chapter one, verse four, 54. He has helped his servant Israel. She's, she's praising God. She's, She's singing his praises. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Jesus' coming is the summation of this history. But then just a few verses down, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was also declaring these things. In verse 69 of Luke chapter 1. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This wasn't, it shouldn't have been, and we see even from the wise men that it wasn't a surprise. People knew the Messiah was coming. They were expectant of the coming Messiah. It was historical. It was history being made. God's redemptive narrative was coming to an incredible moment here. What God promised Abraham, what he spoke by the mouth of prophets from of old, now was being fulfilled in Jesus. Let's pick up then in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because... He was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Jesus' coming was historic in nature. We see the historic birth of Jesus here in verses one through five. I mean, there's several ways you could think about the just historic nature of Jesus' birth here. One is that there was a government that had control of as much of the world to be able to demand a registration this way. I mean, the fact that there was a government with this order and structure to do this, to send Joseph back home, all of that was historic. We see Joseph being from the lineage of David. I mean, this was the right person in the right time. Um, We see that lineage traced in Matthew of just, hey, this is who Jesus came from uh, in in line of Joseph. So Joseph being from uh, Galilee, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, from him to be there, is historic. We can trace the history of that. But then Bethlehem being the place, Bethlehem was historic. Bethlehem is where Rachel was, was buried. Jacob's wife Rachel was buried. This was his determined lineage. This was his determined place thousands of years in the making. The prophet Micah was explicit in telling where the Savior would be born. There was no guesswork. Look at this. Micah 5.2. I'll put it on the screens. Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Jesus' coming wasn't a blip on the historical radar. It was the full shift of time. I mean, this, this is the moment. It was the moment prophecy became reality. It was the moment of hope for all mankind. In Bethlehem that night, Jesus' birth was historical for what it would mean to the future and what it fulfilled from the past. The future would never be the same, and the past, and all it had hoped for, was being fulfilled in that moment. In Bethlehem, he fulfilled the prophecy of place, but he also fulfilled the prophecy of being born of a virgin. And all, of these, all these prophecies from the Old Testament are beginning to be found in Christ here. Everything about the timing of his birth And the place of his birth was perfect. It was perfect for the cause of his glory by saving a people for himself. It wasn't just the historical timing that Luke 2 elevates for us. It's also the way Jesus was born, the way he was born. He had a historic birth. He also had a humble birth. We're going to see in verses 6 and 7 the humble birth of Jesus. The humble birth of Jesus maybe sometimes gets a lot of airtime of how he came, the the how he came. But let's really look at this humble birth of Jesus, verses 6 and 7. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You think about the humility of this moment this is this is not how you'd want to bring your child into the world. there's no room in the inn they're, they're in a manger, but for a king there's not even there's no royal fanfare there's no announcements uh, in this moment of, of like hey the king is here. his humble birth communicates the way of his kingdom though this humble birth is not accidental it, and it's it's not. It's not even very subtle. It's proclaiming the way of his kingdom. God's kingdom is a kingdom of humility and service. The way of Christ is the way of humility and service. Jesus teaches in Matthew 20 that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is determined by servanthood. The Gentiles, they they domineer, They, they lord their power over each other, but not so among you. The greatest among you will serve. In his coming, he sets this example. His birth was less like the arrival of a king and more like the arrival of a servant. It's evidence of how his kingdom operates. It's evidence of how his kingdom operates because his kingdom demands that his people follow after him. So, if Jesus came in humility, how should we expect to be in this world? Should we not also expect to be in this world in humility? Consider this God didn't step out of heaven and change who he was, God stepped out of heaven and gave us himself exactly as who he is. Jesus isn't puny. Jesus is God. And coming in humility isn't a step down for God. It is who God is. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't thoughtless. This was God in in his nature In his goodness, in his kindness coming to us in humility. So, coming in humility wasn't hard for God, it wasn't out of character. Coming as a little cuddly child to lay in a lumpy little manger surrounded by unpleasant smells was on purpose. God was glorifying himself. He was glorifying himself by setting the example of humility and servanthood. But there's a second part of this that plays in as well. He he was also glorifying himself by pointing all of the spotlights onto himself. I saw Graydon and Riker walk in with their papers taking notes. Graydon and Riker, this one's for you guys, all right? Here's a note to take right here. This is a fancy English word for you. The humility of his birth was a juxtaposition against his brilliance. The humility of his birth was a juxtaposition against his brilliance. Juxtaposition, you just compare two things, right? So it's really like putting those things up against each other. Like, look at the humility of the place. As humble as it was, he is so much more majestic, he is so much more wonderful. Why? Why would there need to be royal carpets and gold and gifts in that moment? Why would there need to be this great reception of the king when all of the glory belongs to the king himself? The one laying in the manger was worthy of all the praise. There didn't need to be any glitter or glistening around him. He was the glitter and the glistening. He is the treasure. There was no treasure that could compare or be worth giving to him. Come and bow before that king who doesn't need the temporary things of the world to show his worth and might. He can lay in a manger and change the world. His humility was a juxtaposition against his brilliance. At his coming, where was the beauty? Where was the majesty? Where was the power and honor? All of it was in the manger. The pinpoint of all greatness laid in swaddling clothes. It wasn't in a palace or in an extravagant gift or in finely dressed officials. I mean, what royal niceties could be needed? What could they do but distract from the true royalty laying in that manger? His humble birth reminds us to keep our eyes in the right place. To not get distracted by what's around, but to keep our eyes on the true treasure. Jesus is a treasure and he is glorious all to himself. And we can begin in this life to confuse what the treasure of Christ is. So here's your Christmas reminder that the treasure of Christ is not in your comfort, it's not in your good life, judged by American standards. It's not in your family. It's not in your health. It's not, it's not even in your morality. The treasure of Christ is Christ himself. It is wonderful that God blesses us with so many other things to just shower us with his goodness. But it would be enough, and Christian, we need to believe this today, It would be enough if the only goodness he showered on us was the gospel. If everything in your life is stripped away, the Holy Spirit remains occupying your temple, dwelling in you, pointing you to the love of Jesus, that's enough. His humble birth is evidence of his kingdom and his glory and even his purpose. His purpose in coming wasn't to be served, but to serve. You might already be thinking towards Mark 10:45, "For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve." And how? How would he serve? How would Jesus serve us by giving his life as a ransom for many? The manger was a first image of Jesus' purpose. Of rescuing the world. That he didn't even come to be served. He came to serve. He came in humility. He came not to be served, but to serve and be the ransom for the lost world because the world needed a ransom payer. The world needed ransom. The world was being held as a prisoner by sin and death. And how could we engineer our own escape from that? How can we engineer our own escape from death? We've got stories of fountains of youth, and we've got people spending billions of dollars on healthcare to extend your life a little bit longer. And all those things we can't escape, <laughs> much less escape the sin that causes the need to escape death. We can't engineer our own escape. No one ever could, nor will we ever be able. And it's because we actively imprison ourselves to sin. And all of our trying. We actively imprison ourselves to our own sin. Before Christ, any attempt we made at rescuing ourselves was actually really a picture of digging a deeper hole. I can't tell you how many times I've been told, Mark, stop digging. When I say something that, I, and I can't get out of it, you know, y'all know what I'm talking about. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. You, you just start, you try to make it better, and you just end up making the hole deeper. In our own efforts to save ourselves from the consequence of our sin, all we did was dig the hole deeper but I did good things. Yeah, you dug the hole deeper because you thought you were the ends. You thought you were the means to salvation. You continued to reject Christ in your effort and your work. You dug the hole deeper. There's no way out of sin except for Jesus. We were buried beneath a mountain of sin and shame of our own making. we We piled the dirt on our own heads. Standing before a righteous judge, he would agree that our choices rejected him. So he came himself. He came to lay himself down in our place to take the weight of our mountains of sin so we could be free. That's what Jesus did by coming for us. That's what Jesus did by coming for us even as a baby at Christmas. He was coming for that cause, to to be a ransom for many. He lived a life we couldn't live, one without sin and shame, so that he could die a death we deserved, taking our sin, our, our mountains of sin on himself, bearing that weight on himself, And he rose again to break the curse of our sin and death. When a God who loves the world like this comes into the world, he may come humbly, but he won't come unannounced. All the Old Testament was already giving us the delivery tracker on this coming. He comes humbly, and then we find out that there's, his birth is heralded a heralded birth of Jesus. Hark, the herald angels sing. Look at at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. If Jesus' birth was historic and humble, it was also heralded. That doesn't mean that there was a bunch of guys named Harold hanging around. <laughs> that was a dad joke that I shouldn't have put in there. It doesn't mean there was a bunch of guys around. It means that it was proclaimed and announced and had attention brought to it. In this passage, there are two primary groups of heralds, the, the angels and the shepherds. In the birth story of Jesus, you have more people heralding his coming. I mean, you have John, even, even in his womb, heralding the coming of the king. He, he moves in, in the womb. You've got the angel Gabriel. You've got Mary. You've got Elizabeth. You've got Zechariah. You've got, in a few verses, you've got Simeon and Anna. You have all these people. And you'll find out for the life, all of Jesus' life, when people meet Jesus, what do they do? They, they become heralds of his goodness and of his coming, of his arrival. You've got to see Jesus. right here in Luke 2, it's the angels proclaiming the joy of Jesus' birth. And they proclaimed it to a bunch of sleepy shepherds. It says they were watching at night when the angel of the Lord appeared. And naturally, they were filled with great fear. I have to think that God has a pretty incredible scare prank reel. Like... You know, sometimes you watch on America's Funnish Home videos and it's all the people getting scared, like one by one by one. Like the angels coming, it has to be like an angels scare prank reel, Because when the angels come, they come in these amazing moments, showing up in Mary's bedroom. Like what? These guys are in the middle of a pitch black night. And out of nowhere, this brightest light they've ever seen of angels appearing. can't imagine the terror. Scripture says they were filled with great fear, and I think that's a pretty succinct way of saying that. But in the sight of angels who are less glorious and less stunning than God, in every way, these men tremble. And in their trembling, the angel said, "Fear not." What a beautiful thing to herald at the coming of the king of the universe. It would have been, it would have felt appropriate that the angel would have said, Yeah, fear greatly. Look who's in your presence now. You should be afraid. But what a beautiful message that the angels came in saying, Fear not. How often is that the call of our God on his people? Fear not. His presence is good for us. Jesus came to break fear. He came to bring love. He came to cast out fear. It's appropriate for the angels to say, fear not. He had good news that would bring great joy for all people. And the message is simple. The message is simple but overwhelming in verses 10 through 14. It's not the complexity of the message. It's the simplicity of the message. And it's the way the message is delivered. There's a baby who is a Savior that was just born. That's not hard to understand. There was a baby who is a Savior who was just born. But that simple message was accompanied by this terrifying angel. And then suddenly more angels. Right? The way it's told is that one angel comes and it's terrifying. And then more angels come. It's this overwhelming. I mean, think about the sensory overload of this moment—an army of angels appearing and proclaiming God's glory and the peace He brings. Look, look back at verse fourteen. What does He say? What are these angels saying? "Glory to God in the highest." Can you imagine a multitude, armies of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, "Glory to God in the highest." And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jim pointed out one time, and this, is, this is an excellent point to take here, that the angels, never, we never find out that the angels are singing here, right? Uh, that they're they're proclaiming this, that they're praising God. Uh, I just think it's an interesting take. As we sing, hark the herald angels sing. Well, hark the Heron angels said, really, uh, is what happened here. But these angels were saying how good, praising our God, how good he is, how great his glory is, the peace he is bringing to his people. This message isn't hard to understand, but it is overwhelming. Isn't that true of the message of the gospel? Isn't Isn't the message of the gospel easy to understand, but overwhelming? In its simplicity, we can easily forget how wonderful and terrifying it is. It would be nice if we had an army of angels to remind us every once in a while about how great and astonishing the message of Jesus is. To kind of strike that wonder and awe back into us. And yet we do, right here in Luke 2, an army of angels reminding us what Jesus has done for you, Christian, is astonishing. It is overwhelming. It is too wonderful. It is too extravagant. How can we not be filled with an awe and love that makes all other treasures seem like trash? This king who loves us and came to rescue us and the angels, in hearing of Jesus' birth in such a way, felt this way. What else do we do? You leave your sheep. And what would have been their greatest treasure? It, what would they would have had for all of their income and all of their finances? They left them. Might as well have been trash. Because they went to go find what the angels proclaimed to them. The treasure was clear. The all was present. And the angels, in hearing of Jesus' birth, we find them in verse 15. Look at this. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Can we just stop at verse 15 for a second? And just, I mean, just keep considering what's happening to the shepherds here. Like, isn't it crazy <laughs> that this huge moment with all these voices, all this light just dissipated back into the night? And you wonder which shepherd broke the silence first. Right, like you've got to think these shepherds are hanging around in just in just awe, silent, awestruck moment of what just happened. Which one, like ten minutes later, said, "Well, maybe we should go see if we can find the baby." So they do. They do. They go. They went. They said to one another, "Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened." herald angels proclaimed the message the shepherds went to fact check the claim and i guess really it wasn't much of a fact check like they weren't going because they doubted it they were going because they believed it that's the tone and tenor of their running is let's go see what's been made known to us it wasn't let's go see if the angels were right <laughs> there was no doubt for their mind that they were going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes they knew what they were going to go find they had that belief They went in belief to experience what they knew to be true. They went looking for the baby. Jesus' birth was heralded. Think about this then. What were the angels doing? Why did the angels proclaim this? The angels went and proclaimed this message to those shepherds because people needed to hear about Jesus. That's how God has chosen to be honored By graciously giving faith to those who were once dead in their sin. So the angels were proclaiming God's glory for God's glory. They were treasuring Jesus because he was the treasure. That's what was happening. And when Jesus is treasured as the treasure, then it's also done for those who are lost to be found. Jesus as the great treasure, Jesus as in all his glory... Brings people to repentance. So we can say, yeah, Jesus, the angels proclaimed this because people needed to know the truth because God is glorified when people turn to him. How, how does this happen? How, how do people turn in faith to Christ? It's, it's by the angels proclaiming. But Romans 10 makes it clear again that it's not just angels proclaiming, it's people proclaiming. So this example of the angels proclaiming and heralding the coming of Christ, that's extended to us. Look at Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. Romans 10. If you're in Luke, that's just a few pages over. You're welcome to flip over. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. It's another familiar verse if you've been in church for a while. If it's not familiar to you, I I encourage you, make it familiar. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We find this in the example of the angels. We find it in the example of the shepherds. What did the shepherds do? The shepherds didn't go back to their sheep and just hang out. They went proclaiming. They went as heralds as well. Those who found out that there was a Savior born to the world told the world. And not because they had to be guilt-tripped from Matthew 28. (laughs) You have a commission, church. Yes, you have a joyful commission. You have a commission that is given to you because of the joy of the gospel. You get to go make disciples. We shouldn't have to come with the threat of, if you don't do this, then... We should be able to say, look how good your God is. What great treasure you have. What great treasure you have, church. What great treasure these angels saw and were witness to. What great treasure these shepherds found in that manger, and what great shepherd, what great treasure now shepherds your hearts, church. He loves you deeply and intimately. And he has called you into extending that love to others, into calling others to experience that love. The angels and the shepherds did what every follower of Christ is called to do. Let's herald the news of Jesus. This is why we talk so much at Provision Church about living sin. I hope you're hearing that every week at the end of our service. That's what we're talking about. Live sin and change the world, right? We change the world, how? With the gospel. It's the only way the world can truly be changed is with the gospel. What does it mean to live sent? Church, you have been sent from the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. He sends you into the world to be ambassadors, to be light in the darkness, to be heralds to a lost world. Those who don't know Christ and don't know of the good news to proclaim that news. Church, you are sent. It's not something, it's not an idea that we've created to build an organization We don't share the gospel because we want people to buy into our product. We share the gospel because our lives have been transformed, because we have seen the blinding light in the darkest night, because we, like the shepherds, have seen all of our greatest treasures become like trash in the light of our glorious Jesus. We have seen that the message is true. Haven't we, church? Haven't we? Haven't we? Haven't we seen that the message is true? Haven't we seen that Luke 1 and 2 isn't just some fan fiction written? I mean, isn't Luke 1 and 2, isn't this true? Absolutely, not subjectively. Objectively, it is true that this history happened, but it's not just man's history. This is the history of an eternal God who is called a, a people to himself. And in its truth, we get to be a part of what he has done. We gladly and freely, with heart-pounding excitement, tell of what our Savior has done. It's hard to keep the type of excitement, the type of emotion, the type of feeling that these shepherds must have had. The type of feeling that you must have had when you really were saved at first. Isn't it hard to maintain? I mean, every team that wins a championship comes down from that high. How can we maintain? How how can it be true that maybe we have heart-pounding excitement to tell of what our Savior has done? I want to give you three challenges that I give very often, and I'll continue to give here at Christmas. Be in the Word. If you want to remember the height and hype of your salvation, then go back to it if you want to remember the the height and hype of a championship you rewatch it on ESPN classic right if if you want to remember the goodness of god go to where god tells of his goodness be reminded of it regularly pour yourself into it so it can pour himself into so he can pour himself into you we go back to the word regularly to fill the goodness of god and not just fill it but know it it is true so be in the word, love the word, love the word. But then also pray like crazy, right? We need to be communicating with God. We need to, we need to be in earnest prayer to our God. We need to claim him as our father and speak to him that way because he has claimed us as his children, church, by faith. So we go to him in his word. We love the word. We pray like crazy to have this heart pounding excitement. And, and here's, here's, here's the last piece. And this is the hardest one. Share the gospel. If you if you share the gospel, share it regularly, or if you share it, if you've shared it in the past, if you can think to the last time you've shared the gospel, like to the point that you said, are you ready to trust Jesus for your salvation? I've never had that opportunity where my heart has not been pounding. When you think about how can we have this heart-pounding excitement of the gospel, we have to be heralds of the gospel. We must be like these angels and shepherds proclaiming the goodness of our God to those who are far from God. And if we reject God's call in our life to herald His good news, then it will be hard for us to experience that heart-pounding excitement of knowing and enjoying Him. Christmas is a call to disciple-making. Jesus coming, that's what it is. He came to make disciples. He came to make for himself a people. So what, what will you do today with this text? What will you do today heading into Christmas this week? I, I love this week. I love heading into Christmas. All the parts of the nostalgia and the trees and all of it. What will you do? How will you respond to the message of the Savior? Maybe you need to receive him by faith. Maybe today you heard the gospel, that Jesus came and died for your sins, the sins that you piled on your own head, that you really were born with, that you had no escape from, that there was one who came to take that from you. And he said that by faith you can be saved. He said, believe and repent. Believe in in Christ as your great treasure, that he is the only one who can save you and you can be saved. And to be clear, that's not action from you. That's that's receiving what action has been done for you. So today, that that could be you. Why not right now? Why not right now receive that? Give your life to Christ. Trust in him. Stop giving your life to idols. Give your life to Jesus. Jesus. you're looking for a sign this is this is it god's word you need to be saved don't keep waiting looking for something god is speaking to you today through his word be saved turn treasure him above all things maybe you need today to humble yourself That you've taken an air of superiority for yourself that Jesus didn't even take for himself. And that your arrogance and your pride is hurting people around you and not reflecting the goodness and kindness and humility of our own God. Maybe you need to treasure him like the shepherds and find the joy of the gospel that leads to sharing it with others. But how do you respond today? How do you be a doer of the word and not simply a hearer? I'm going to be in the back underneath those double doors. If you'd like to talk, if you'd like to pray, come find me. There's so many believers in this room who would love to pray with you and talk with you. You don't have to find me in the back. You can find any person who loves Jesus and they would be glad to pray with you. But I want to pray over you now. As we continue worshiping now through prayer and then through song, I want to pray over you. And I ask that during this time that you would, you would open your heart, that you would be open. That instead of being closed off and cold to the message of Jesus, that right now you would be warm to what he is saying. That you'd be warm to giving him the praise and honor he deserves. Would you pray with me? Father, this gospel message that has never not been on your mind. I thank you so much for the redemption I have because of your good news. I thank you for the redemption that your church has because of your good news, that you came for us as a baby. God, over this next week, I know there's going to be so many opportunities for us to leverage our moments and our lives for the gospel. I pray that you would give the believers in this room such boldness. (laughs) They would be courageous to the point of being awkward and weird. God, help them to experience the joy of being heralds of, of your news, of your gospel. I pray, God, that you would be going before them as you do, that your Holy Spirit would be preparing hearts, softening hearts to hear the gospel, that there would be many who might come to know you this Christmas season. God, maybe if there's some right now listening that don't know you, that are still searching for salvation in their own strength, in the strength of other humans or other things, God, I pray that you draw them sweetly to yourself. That they would hear the call of their king, and surrender. Oh God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.